I'd like to invite your attention this morning, if you will, please, to the book of Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3. I'd like to read the scripture this morning and then our focal point, really our text verse, will be from verse 11 of Colossians chapter 3. I'd like to begin reading this morning in verse 9 in this passage where Paul is urging believers to spiritually seek things above, that we're spiritual people and we, we have to have a spiritual mindset in the way that we live. And in verse 9, he, he opens up with a command of, of, uh, of the importance of being honest with one another and then he, then he launches into why this is so important. And we'll see it as we look at the verse this morning. Verse 9 of Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So he's talking here about the experience of your conversion. An old life was put off and a new life was put on. And it's a, transform, it's a transformation, it's a, it's a complete renovation of your life and the way that you think. You become a different person. And then verse 11, he says, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. I'd like to speak this morning from that text, and my message is entitled, Christ is All. May we bow our heads together for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the wonderful and precious Word of God. Lord, you have spoken to us, and you have given it to us in written form, your revelation. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us your purpose on this earth and the establishment of your body called the church. And so, Lord, bless the church this morning. And Lord Jesus, may you be lifted up. Please cleanse this preacher from sin and fill with your spirit this morning that your word will not be hindered, but will have free course to work in hearts, edify the body, build them up, Lord, strengthen this church that they may be as one voice speak forth the gospel in this New England area. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This letter here that Paul has written is called the book to the Colossians. And the Colossian people were in a city called Colossae, which is located in central Turkey today. So why did he write this letter? Background is always important. Context is always important. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter while he was in the city of Rome. Why was he in Rome? Because he was in prison there. While he was in Rome, he was visited by the founding, you could say, pastor of the church of Colossae, whose name was Epaphras. Now think about it, to travel from central Turkey to Rome is a long trip today, but in those days it was by foot and it was by boat. So this was an extremely long journey. So why did he go to see Paul? And the answer is because he had a problem in the church and he needed an answer. By the way, just to let you know, churches do have problems if you don't realize that yet. You say, I'm looking for the perfect church. Well, please don't you join it because you're going to mess it up. 
God's people have problems. And so Paul, Paul was in prison, and here is this man named Epaphras who comes to see him, and he has a problem. So what was the problem? Well, essentially it was this, that there, were a, there was a teaching going on in the church that was starting to, if I could say it this way, mess things up. It was affecting the church. It was a subtle form of teaching that was not like, like gross error, but it was a wrong way of thinking about conversion and about the Christian life. And that is this, certain teachers had come into the church declaring that the gospel that had been preached by Epaphras, and just to let me say this, the Apostle Paul had a two and a half year ministry in the city of Ephesus. And during that time, there were many conversions and the people that were converted went out and started churches in other cities. And Paul had never been to Colossae, but Epaphras was, you could say this way, the church planter who went back to Colossae and preached and people started getting saved and the church was formed. And Paul had never been there, but of course it was a result of his ministry. So what had happened was certain teachers had come into the church and essentially what they said is this. What Epaphras taught the church was sufficient enough to save the people. In other words, his gospel preaching brought people to salvation experience. However, what he was teaching them was not sufficient for the whole of their Christian life. That is... He gave them a message that was incomplete, that they needed something more. That's the key language. And the reason I emphasize that is because every believer feels that they need more. For example, how many of you would say, I would like to know God better? How many of you would like to know God better? Raise your hand. Sure. How many of you would like to have a greater knowledge of the Lord, to know him more? How many would like to have a fuller experiential knowledge of God where, God, where, you, where you feel closer to God? How many of you would like to experience that? Of course, all of us are that way. But not only was there a... a, a the idea of, of you need to know the Lord more, but also you need a greater freedom or a greater victory to overcome your own struggles of life, whether they're emotional struggles like depression or fear or anxiety, or whether they're, they're, they're sinful habits and addictions of things in my life that I cannot seem to overcome, or whether or not I feel like I can rise above the world that I'm living in, how many of you would say, I would like to be able to have greater freedom to overcome the problems of my life? How many of you would like to experience that? Raise your hand. Of course, everybody would. So the appeal or the nature of the appeal uh, to the problem that was in the church is something that all of us want to have. The problem is not in the need, the problem is in the answer. And the answer of the teaching was that what Epaphras had taught them was not sufficient. That they needed add-ons. 
In other words, they came to the church and they talked about your best life now. And how you could have this greater experience. And the problem was that this, this message that they brought to the church was actually not focused on Christ and Christ's sufficiency. It was focused on add-ons. And then you can go through it. I'm not going to take the time to do it this morning, but Colossians chapter 2, the whole chapter is about the add-ons. Whether it's, it's the idea of a mystical add-on, a mystical experience, or whether it's a, it's a more of an intellectual knowledge, or whether it's more of a tendency to legalism like touch not, taste not, handle not, or as we know throughout church history, it's the idea of being stricter on yourself so that you live sort of a monkish life. And it's all of these add-ons, and in all of these add-ons, the one thing that you, that's not the focus is Christ himself. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. It's to correct a subtle teaching that was a real problem 2,000 years ago, and it's still a real problem today. So we come to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, and Paul is sort of giving us, if I could say it this way, a conclusive statement. And it's really found throughout the entire book of Colossians. For the theme of the book of Colossians can be summed up in one great word, and it's the word all. It's used 30 times to emphasize Christ as the one who is everything to everyone. And so he says at the end of verse 11, but Christ is all in in all. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Because if this is so important, what does that mean when he says Christ is all in in all? And actually two basic points this morning. The first one is in that statement, Christ is all. And it simply means this, that Jesus Christ is described as the source of everything. Christ is all. When you say Jesus, you have said it all. And in chapter 1, he gives us two important key ideas. Number one, he reveals Christ as the source of the created world. Look at chapter 1, and if you'll note verse 15, he says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. Paul reveals Christ as the source of the created world. And of course, when we go back in the Bible, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Moses announces that all creation finds its origin in the supernatural creator God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Old Testament reveals the name of the creator. His name is Jehovah. What does Jehovah mean? It means the one who exists, the self-existing God. Or another phrase is the word, the great I am. That is, God is a self-sufficient being who depends on no one for his existence. Everything in creation finds its source in the God who made everything. But then we come to the New Testament in John chapter 8 and verse 58. Jesus made a self-proclamation. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you before Abraham was, 
I am. And what Jesus announced in his day is that Jehovah creator that is found in the Old Testament is actually Jesus the creator in the New Testament. So that we see in Jesus Christ the one who has created all things. So what is Paul saying here in verse 15 when he says he is the image of the invisible God? You could say it this way. He is the perfect picture of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. For Jesus Christ is God. And so Paul says God has revealed himself in the person of Christ. And what did he do? He created all things, verse 16. Christ is the one who made everything, whether it's physical or spiritual, whether it's visible or invisible, whether it's human or angelic. Everything finds its source in Christ. And if Christ is the source of everything, then he is the one who sustains everything. Look at what he says in verse 17. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Hebrews says he upholds all things by the word of his power. May I say it this way? Christ is the one who keeps everything from flying apart. You want to mess up a church? Take Jesus out. It'll get messed up overnight. Christ is the glue that holds us together. He is the source of all things. Nothing in creation will ever find its true meaning in life apart from being connected in relationship with Jesus Christ. He is, he is the ultimate purpose for everything. All things were created by him and for him. Life does not work without Jesus. Jesus is the center of it all. But not only is he the source of the created world. But Paul says here, he is the source of the new creation, the church. And that's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. The apostle Paul was given the responsibility to teach Christians about the church. And essentially what the church is, is a new creation. Think of it this way. In biblical times, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. A Jew is the one who received revelation from God through Moses. And the Gentiles were pagans that worshipped idols. In biblical times, there were Jews and there were Gentiles only. That's, that's if you could say it this way, that's the two races in the world. But when when the church of Jesus Christ was founded or when Christ came, he came to establish a new race, a new humanity, a new people group. And that people group is called the church of Jesus Christ. So when we read here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, what is he talking about? He's talking about all the people who have come into the church by faith, whether they're Jew or Gentile. 
They are one body in Jesus Christ. And believers are placed into this new living organism called the church. And Jesus is the head and we are part of the body. And Christ is the source not only of the created world, but he is the source of the new creation. And life without Christ doesn't work. And let me say that the Christian life in the church doesn't work without Christ. That's why Christ has to be the center of everything. My oldest daughter, Rebecca, she's now 37. A number of years ago when she was in college, lived in a certain town where she had a job and worked. And then she attended a church that I recommended for her to attend. And she attended there for about two months in the summertime. So I called her up one day and like a dad would do. Hey, sweetheart, how's church? And, you know, my kids, my kids grew up in a preacher's home, so they do understand preaching and church and the Bible. And you know what was really interesting? Is it was dead quiet on the other end. And I said, this, I thought, this is not good. She said, Dad... It's really hard for me to keep, she said, I don't know if I can keep taking the rhetoric. Now, what she meant by that was that I was attending church, but it really wasn't Bible preaching. It was more rhetoric. It was more kind of like, here's what you're supposed to do, and and in essence, you have to agree with me on what I'm saying. And so I said, well, I do know another church in town. Why don't you go there next Sunday and let me know? So she went to this other church. And I called her up the next Sunday. I said, how was service? And she said, Daddy, preach from Colossians chapter 1 on the supremacy of Christ. And I cried through the whole service. Folks, we, we can't, Christ is our life. He he is the vine and we are the branches and branches can't exist without the vine. Christ sustains the church by his power. Christ supplies the church with his strength. Christ guides the church with his wisdom. When he says Christ is all, he's saying Christ is the source of everything, of our spiritual life, of the church, of everything we do. And what he's simply saying to the Colossians is that whatever these people are teaching you, they are taking you away from Christ. It's not Christ plus. It's Christ alone. Christ is sufficient. What you got at salvation is enough to sustain you for the whole of your Christian experience. And whether you accept Christ in the beginning or you walk with Christ throughout your life or you lie on your deathbed, Christ is enough for everything. So Christ is the source of everything. But then there's a second point. And that is not only is Christ all, but Christ is in all. And you could say it this way, not only is he the source of everything, but he is to be the focus of everyone. That is the focus in the church must be Christ. 
And Paul's emphasis in this section is on the unity that is to be found in the church. And when he says Christ is in all, he's speaking of the solidarity believers have because of their connection or their union with Christ. Just like the center of a hub and spokes that go out, so all believers are the spokes, but Christ is the hub. Just like in a house where you have an electrical box and out of that flows electricity to every socket in the house, Christ is the electrical box and we are the connecting points that go out from there. And so the church is a body into which all believers from every background are joined together Greek, Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free. Christ unifies people racially, culturally, geographically, and economically. And though the believers are diverse, they are unified in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And this unity is impossible without some clear commonalities. And when I mean commonalities, it's what we all have in common. I walked in Ben's office this morning and he has a, a couple of uh, sports teams he likes up on the wall. He's got Red Sox and Patriots. I could, I could care less about the Patriots. I mean, you know, in Red Sox, I asked how the Red Sox are doing, he said not so good. But I could care less about the Patriots because I could care less about the NFL. I like the EPL. You say, what is that? Where have you been all your life? English Premier League soccer, football. Now, you want to talk about Manchester United or some other team, that now, now we can talk. So our unity is not found in our attitude towards the Patriots or the Red Sox. Our unity is found in the commonality that we all have, not just in who Christ is, but our experience, what we have experienced in common. And what are those commonalities? Number one, we have a commonality actually in doctrine and what we believe. All believers, regardless of their background, embrace the same primary truths of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1 and verse 5, he described the preaching as the word of the truth, the gospel. These truths are not mysteries that are hidden, but they are clearly declared. That's referring first and foremost to the person of Christ, his deity. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1.15 when he's the image of God and the creator of all things. There is the belief in the sacrificial atoning death of Christ for our sins. And that's what he talks about in verses 20 through 22, where he purchased the church with his own blood. And we believe in the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins. And then number three, we believe in the glorious resurrection of Christ from the dead, that he bodily rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. He ascended into heaven. And one day he's going to split the sky and come back and we as believers are looking forward to that great day. These are the commonalities we have in what we believe. 
Paul spoke about those commonalities. When he said in Ephesians chapter, chapter 4, he talked about the ones. You could read them. One spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. These are things that all believers believe. At Bob Jones University, every day in chapel, we say a 97-word creed. And the founder had it written for one purpose. He has, because we have Christians that come to Bob Jones University from 50 states and 46 foreign countries. They come from all over the world in differing denominations. And so if you have to have unity on everything, it's not going to work. So the unity is found in that creed. And what is the creed? It's the basic things believers believe. And these are our commonalities. I heard a sermon preached years ago. I thought it was a great title. It was called Die, Fight, and Fuss For. And basically the idea of the sermon was there are things that we will die for, things we'll fight for, and things we'll fuss for. And he, and he, and he put them in those groups. Like He says, I'm going to die for the virgin birth of Jesus. If you tell me that Jesus is not a virgin, I'm not just going to fight for it, I'm going to die for it. I'm going to die for the inspiration of the Bible. I'm going to die for the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. I'm going to die for these things. Then he talked about things he's going to fight for. He was a Baptist. He says, I'm going to fight for baptism by immersion, and I'm going to punch you in the nose if you believe anything else. He said, I'm going to fight for the eternal security of the believer. And then he talked about what he's going to fuss for, the things he's going to fuss about. So the sermon was called, Die, Fight, and Fuss For. We talk about primary, secondary, and tertiary level things. But the commonalities that all believers have is that we believe in doctrine, the truths of Christ. The second commonality we have is a commonality in experience. What does that mean? Everybody's saved the same way. We are all saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Verse 4 of chapter 1, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 6, therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. A number of years ago I was teaching Chinese pastors on an island in the South Pacific for a week. And these were all from what we know as communist China, pastors who had been converted. And each evening, one of the pastors came to my room where I was staying and shared his testimony with me. And he told me how he was converted. And do you know what? Though the circumstances in and of themselves were different, the actual experience of all of them was the same. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were brought under the conviction of sin. They recognized their need of Jesus. And they reached out and they accepted Christ by faith by calling upon his name. And it was amazing how all of them were gloriously converted, but they were all saved in the same way. All believers are all saved the same way by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have a commonality in that. So when you and I have something in common. We're believers and we've accepted Christ. But then there's a third commonality. And that is we share a commonality in our conduct or in our ethics. And that's really what chapter 3 is all about. Because Paul command, Paul's command for Christian living in chapter 3 is not based on cultural traditions and practices. 
In other words, I could say it this way. I can take chapter 3 of the book of Colossians that teaches us how we ought to live, and I can take that to any culture in the world, and I've experienced this because I preached in 25 different foreign countries, and I find that believers fundamentally believe and seek to live the same way. Because when you and I are saved, when we become believers at conversion, our old life of sin is put off and our new life of righteousness is put on. We call it putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Christian morality is based on the nature of salvation and the character of God. Believers are in a process of being renovated. We're in a process of being changed more into the spiritual and the moral likeness of Christ. But all believers in all places share the same commonalities in our spiritual and our moral conduct. So that's why he says in verse 9, don't lie to each other because Christians stop telling lies and start telling the truth. That's why he says in verse 5 that we're to put away immorality and fornication and adultery. Why? Because these are elements of the old life and we have put on the new life. And there ought to be that consistency in all places. So if I preach in Zambia or Uganda or Russia, or India, or Australia, or the Philippines, or somewhere in South America, and I've preached in all of these countries that I've mentioned, you go to these places and what do they believe? They have a commonality in doctrine, a commonality in experience of salvation, and there's a commonality in, in, in the, the, the spiritual and the moral makeup of the congregation, and all of these are speaking of what it means to be Christ is all in in all. It is a reflection of the unity and the commonalities that we have in Jesus Christ. And so he concludes the book by simply saying that Christ is sufficient for every need in the church. The word of Christ is sufficient for our preaching. The presence of Christ is sufficient for our living. The power of Christ is sufficient to overcome sin. The fellowship we have in Christ is sufficient for our unity. The peace of Christ is sufficient to rule the church. And the relationship we have with Christ is sufficient to build our own families. All of this is the fact that Christ is more than enough. So, as a preacher said, you said, so, then he's going to say, so what? What does this all mean? As we finish this morning, I'd like to go to Colossians chapter 1, and he tells us the so what. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have something. He wants something. That in all things he might have the what? The preeminence. You say, what does that mean? Pre, before, eminence like your eminence, like a, 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 a sovereign or a ruler. Basically what he's saying is, in simple language, he wants to have first place in everything. Who gets first place in Trinity Baptist Church? It's not the deacons. It's not the pastors. It's Jesus. Amen? I hope you all agree with that. We don't, I got to go back and start over the whole sermon. We got to go back to square one. Jesus is first place. He, he, 
in, he is preeminent. He is the Lord. He is the head of this church. Christ, Christ is the head of this church. This church, by the way, how do we know that, that, that this is his church? Because of what you believe, your doctrine, because of what you've experienced, salvation, because of the way God's worked in your life and changed you. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. He is to be first place. You're not, you don't get first place. I don't get first place. He gets first place. He is to have preeminence not only in the church, but he's to have preeminence in the life of every Christian. The most important person in your life is Jesus. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your children. I'm not saying those are unimportant, but Christ is to be first in everything in your life so that every direction, every decision, Every desire should be brought under his preeminence and authority and he has right over your whole life. I ask you, does Christ have preeminence in your life? Is he first? Because as a believer, I begin to really understand his sufficiency when I give him first place. So I trust him to guide me and I trust him to keep me and I trust him to guard me and I trust him to care for me and I trust him to supply for me and Christ is more than enough. He is able, he is Jehovah, he's the all-sufficient one and he wants to have preeminence. And there's only one way for him to have preeminence in you and that is you have to give it to him. You have to surrender. It's an act of faith. I'd say probably the greatest challenge that I face in my role at, at Bob Jones University and my own life is always, is Jesus Christ first? Is he first in our students? Is he first in our choices? Is he first in everything we do? Because Christ is sovereign and therefore he is to be in first place. In a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm so glad that I can, I can fellowship with you folks today around this precious table. But this table tells us who's first because it's the Lord's table and it represents the Lord who gave his life for us. I hope that Christ is first in your life. Would you bow your head with me as we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for the total, complete sufficiency that Christ is all and in all. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. And thank you, Lord, that you are the head of the church. And I pray that today that we will live our lives, uh, our whole life, in a place where you are preeminent over all things on a daily basis. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.